Christians. And we use these times to delve deeper into biblical truth and to look at particular topics or series. And at the moment, we're doing a series called On the Move. And I'm sort of the guest speaker tonight, as Steve is on holiday. And uh, I've had one wedding and two sermons this weekend. And I've also had more coffees today than I ever usually have. And I've got enough material to fill three nights. And I'm going to try and do it all. So if you can imagine... um, a Bible study of someone who was on speed, that's what I'm aiming for, um, on the move. Now, the mainstream media usually consistently, I think, tells a narrative of church decline in the West. It can be very depressing. And Christians sometimes echo it. We sort of talk in terms of, oh, everything's going wrong and it's a bit hopeless. And you even get to sort of a position towards the culture that's that's a, 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 we've got to hunker down, we're in a bunker, we've got to circle the wagons, just keep your head down, we'll all be dead soon, don't worry. And yet the Bible um, tells a very different story. We know that God is still sovereign. We know that the gospel is still true. Jesus is still gracious. This is the day of grace. And he has promised that he will build his church and nothing will prevail against it. And in fact, the real story It's not one of decline, but that Aslan is on the move. Uh, If you know the Narnia books, Aslan is a great lion, the picture of Jesus, the Lion of Judah. He's on the move and he always has been. Let me just share a few few facts that will crystallize how the world has changed in just the last century a bit more. At the start of the 20th century, 90% of the world's Christians lived in Europe and North America. 90%. So it's quite localized. The start of the 21st century, so just 100 years later, 70% of the world's Christians live in the non-Western world. A massive move to the majority world, an expansion. Another stat. There are more people worshiping in church, in a church, every Sunday in China than in the whole of Western Europe. And at the beginning of the 20th century, there were very few Chinese Christians. Another fact, there are now more Episcopalians, that means Church of England or or the like, in Nigeria than in Britain, Europe, and North America combined. The church is growing globally. So we're talking about an interesting expansion and also something of a reversal. There's been major growth in lots of places and some decline in others, but overall a significant advance on the move. Here is one statistic. By 1985, there were over 16,500 conversions to Christianity every day in Africa. So an annually over 6 million Africans coming to faith in Jesus. At the same time, about 4,000 people were leaving the church daily in Europe and North America. So there's a major advance in, in many parts of the world and some decline in other parts, a little bit like the sea. And at the same time as this, there are over one and a half billion people in the world who still don't have any opportunity to hear about Jesus. We call them unreached people groups. So just giving you a picture there of the world we live in, I want to ask, what is God's heart for the world? Let's turn to a very well-known passage to start off, Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 to 20. And this 
these, this passage is often called the Great Commission. In fact, my Bible here says the Great Commission. Um, oh, I should say, we've got Bibles being handed out if you want to borrow the church one. And you will need it tonight. If not to turn up the passages, then at least to fan your face with the pages to keep awake. Matthew 28. <clears throat> it says there in, in this one, uh, page 1,000. What a great page number. The 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, <coughs> some were, they worshipped him, but some doubted. It's still a bit, a bit uncertain. Then Jesus came to them and he said this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So he's got all authority. Go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. A great commandment and a great provision. He'll always be with us. Now, this text is saying that Jesus is uh, the Lord of all. He's authority in heaven and on earth. And he's commanding <coughs> his disciples to go and make followers, learners from every nation. Now here's the question. Is this a new idea? Is this, Jesus has just come up with this, this is a brand new idea. Until now it's all been about Israel. But now we're on to plan B. Plan B is the world. Now you know, if you've ever watched a box set, uh, we got a few, some years ago got into the West Wing. And at one point, we also almost believed that uh, Jedediah Bartlett was the president of America. We were so absorbed in it. Or you, maybe you've been into Downton Abbey or some other box set. You can imagine that if you started watching the box set of 20 episodes, but you started watching at episode 14, you would kind of, you probably could make out what was going on and pick it up, but you wouldn't really have that sense of the whole story. And that's why we... New Testament, New Covenant believers need to know our Old Testament because that's episode 1 to 13. So we're going to spend most of our time this evening looking at God's heart for the world in the Old Testament. So thinking about that Great Commission, Matthew 28, let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1, the very first chapter in the Bible. And that is on page 3. Page three, look at, what do you notice from this first verse? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Here we have the world as a kind of blank canvas. It's been created out of nothing by God. He's made the whole of it, heavens and earth, but it's formless, it's empty, it's, it needs filling and inhabitants. And uh, it's, it's dark, it's deep, and the Spirit of God is hovering, and it's, it's pregnant, waiting for something to happen. And God then creates, and as you know, the famous, let there be light. And from that, we get the days of creation, an orderly creating of effectively habitations, and inhabitants, uh, realms, the air, the, the sky, the sea, the land, and rulers, the birds rule the sky, fish in the sea, creatures in the sea, 
And then, supremely, humankind are made to rule over the earth on the sixth day. And so we have <coughs> this creation. Now, look at a very famous verse. We've looked at this a lot in this church, but you, you can't read it too often. Genesis 1.26. God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, here's their mandate, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This is God's intention for human beings. Uh, it's that they should cooperate with him, serve under him in filling and ruling and governing the world. And he originally makes one pair, one male, one female. They are to exercise dominion together as his image bearers. You see that language? He creates them in his image. No other creature is made in the image of God. So human beings have this unique status. That on the one hand, they're made from the stuff of the earth, Adam is formed from the, the, dust, the dust of the earth, they're creatures. But they're also spiritual beings who are made in God's image and image him, reflect him, imitate him in his ruling of the world. So this whole chapter is about God filling and ruling and, and bringing order to the world. And then he says to his, his um, representatives, that's what you need to do now. You go and fill the earth. Now, what are they filling the earth with? And the answer is, they're filling it with other image bearers, filling it with people. And people carry God's glory with them. They, they give glory to God wherever they go. So the earth is to be filled with God's glory. That's the plan right at the beginning. It's what we were made for. And it's actually why human beings, wherever we go, are creative and we make realms and we rule over them, even if it's your back garden or your stamp collection. We image God without even meaning to, actually. That's how we're wired up. Rule the earth, subdue the earth. There's a scholar called John Walton who says this, if people were going to fill the earth, they would have to move out of the garden. Yeah? So God creates the first garden of Eden, but it's a boundary place, and they have to move out of that and expand it to fill the earth. Moving out of the garden would seem to necessitate an expansion of Eden so that that beautiful environment fills the whole world. So that's the original commission. Now we know that Adam was not faithful and obedient and he lost his job as a royal priest. But what we find with Jesus in Matthew 28 is a reapplication of what was, we were commanded to do in the very first place. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations and the disciples will be those who fill the earth with the glory of God. So God is recapturing his lost world through his people. So one scholar, Greg Beale, says, actually the Great Commission is Genesis 1.28 and Matthew 28 is a, he says, a regurgitation of it. I don't know about regurgitation. 
Now, soon after the fall occurred, you know, and the, the, the project was derailed, humans and creation were cursed of sin, and God, at that very point, begins a plan to redeem humanity and the world, and his plans are designed to restore the original plan of filling, ruling, and subduing the earth. And the whole Bible story can be read from start to finish as how God achieves that plan. And I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. At the end, he does it. By revelation, we read that he brings us back to the original role of filling, ruling, and caring for the earth. Now we're going to flip over a few pages, turn to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis 8, and we're on page 10 now in the church Bible. Genesis 8, 15 to 19. This is uh, some generations after the original human parents, and we're uh, in the life of a guy called Noah, whose name sounds like rest, and we're hoping that he's the one that will bring rest to the world, but things are very dark. Genesis 8. God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives, Bring out, now listen, just try and listen for echoes of, of the first chapter of the Bible here. Bring out, of it, out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. Have you heard about multiplying, being fruitful, and increasing before? It's Genesis 1. So here we are after the flood. Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds. Everything that moves on land came out of the ark, one kind after another. So it's very deliberate, this mention of birds, animals, living creatures, things that move along the ground, things that fly, uh, all coming out, the waters of chaos that have, have, have flooded the earth, separating dry land there, the creation coming out, and a new, we think, Adam coming out. His name is Noah. And what do we read next? Turn to uh, just over to the next chapter, Genesis 9, 6 to 11. Listen to what God says. Whoever sheds, this is Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made mankind. So even though there's been a fall and a terrible decline and, and a, a catastrophe, we're still made in the image of God. That verse proves it. And here's the repeat command to Noah. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. So what we have here, in similar to Genesis, it's a recreation. But at the same time, there's, there's a sense that God, things have changed. In verse uh, 11, it says, I established my covenant. Sorry, beg your pardon. Um, verse 8 says, God said to Noah and his sons, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. We've got a new beginning. God is making a covenant, which is a, a relationship, a commitment, a binding relationship, and he says, I won't destroy the earth with water again. And he relates to the world in this rescuing, saving way. But in the next few chapters, wickedness keeps increasing. There are continued problems with the whole of humanity. And we get to this point in Genesis chapter 12 
where God does something new. Turn over to Genesis 12. He calls this guy Abram. And Genesis 12 begins with these words. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And then he makes this promise. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So here we have God's counter-strike to the wickedness of the world. And it's not to, ru- to uh, destroy it with a flood. It's to call one person and make a promise to them. A very unlikely kind of nobody person. But to give him this astonishing promise. It has seven parts. It begins with him prom- being promised a great nation and blessing and a great name. But it ends with this amazing promise. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Or another way of translating it is every family on earth will be blessed through you. So what God is doing here is making a covenant, not with the earth, but with an individual, making a promise. So God is making a fresh beginning again. He started with Adam, then there was Noah, now there's Abraham. And God makes this promise to one person, and as it develops to one nation, the descendants of Abraham. So there's a new thing here, but it's also a continuation. And that's why, if you've ever wondered, why Christians make such a big deal about the Israelites and the Old Testament and all that ancient history, is because that's the people that God was using to fulfill his promises was through them. Now, just a couple more comments on Abraham. Some things that that have become clearer to us over time. There are three parts to this blessing. Firstly, it's numerical and personal. God personally says to Abraham, I'm going to give you a lot of descendants. And that is a great thing in his life. He was actually a man who had no children in a culture where that meant everything. And God says, you're going to have so many descendants, you won't even be able to count them. But this national people blessing to Abraham goes well beyond him personally. These descendants will actually become a great nation. God has a plan for the nation. And thirdly, what it's all about is that it will be a blessing to the world. Verse 3, again, says, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham is blessed in order to be a blessing. That's the, the, um, the dynamic, the, the forward thrust, the momentum of these, this, these early chapters. There's this emphasis on all peoples. It's embedded right there in this key key passage. God's heart has always been for all the nations. So when Jesus picks it up in Matthew 28, this is not a new idea. Jesus is picking up and continuing the same emphasis. Over the page to Genesis 17, God appears to Abraham again. And this fleshes out the detail a bit more. Genesis 17 verse 5. No longer will you be called Abraham. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. Abraham means something like father of many. I will make you very fruitful. I will make, listen to this, nations of you. 
and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. He's promising Abraham that it will make him into a father of nations, not just one. He'll be very, very fruitful. And then Abraham's son Isaac gets the promise repeated to him. Genesis 18 verse 18. <coughs> Over the page, excuse me. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. That's to his promise to his son. Genesis 26 over a few more pages. Genesis 26, this is page 27. In verse 3 it says, uh, Stay in this land for a while and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed. Same parts of the promise are being laid out. Numerical blessing, national blessing, spiritual blessing to the world. So this original promise and relationship that God established with Abraham and his descendants was not something that was just for them. It wasn't just so that they could have their own relationship with God and, 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 and he, he would look after them and they'd be sort of cozy. You, they were blessed so that they could reach the world and that the world would be blessed through them. And that's repeated, not just to Abraham, but to Isaac and Jacob. So when the New Testament starts to tap into this all nations language, it's not a new invention. It's part of God's heart and always has been. Let's turn over to uh, an interesting chapter. Actually, we'll turn back to it. This is not most people's favorite chapter in the Bible, I'll be honest. It's Genesis chapter 10. Genesis 10, the table of nations. If you've ever done one of those Bible reading plans, there's a good chance that you skipped through this chapter pretty quickly. And all these names. This is like the person reading the Bible in church, worst nightmare, you know. Genesis 10. This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons who themselves had sons after the flood. And what this chapter does is it lists all the nations in the world at that time. And it lists all these the sons of this and the sons of that and where they go. And they, they spread out all around the world after the flood. Now, what is this going on here? Why is this even in the Bible, this table of nations? It's very interesting because this demonstrates really early in the Bible an understanding that Yahweh, God, the Lord, is the Lord of all the nations, not just one. Now, liberal uh, scholars assume that the further back in history you go, the more local people's worldview is, and the more tribal would there be their conception of God. God's their God, the tribal God. They can't handle this chapter, because in this chapter, God is the Lord of all these nations. There's 70 of them. Very important number. Gradually, the Jews came to recognize the number 70 as representing all the nations in the world. 70 symbolically means all the nations. Now turn over to Luke chapter 10. Uh, some of you know this chapter very well. Uh, page 1041. Jesus sends out the 72. Luke chapter 10. You know this because it's the famous uh, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest field. 
But look, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them one, two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, why am I looking at this? Especially when I just said the number of the nations was 70. Look at the footnote. Right down there, it says, some manuscripts have 70. So did Jesus send out 72 or 70? I mean, it might seem a bit trivial. But the point here is that the, uh, there's a manuscript difference with Genesis 10 as well. So some manuscripts in Genesis 10 have the number of nations as 70, and some manuscripts have the number of nations as 72. And you're thinking, okay. But the point is, Jesus is linking back to Luke 10 by picking this number of people. And the early scribes knew that. And so some of them thought, oh, it must be 72 or 70. So there's a slight change in the way they copy this. But it proves the fact, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus, by picking this many people to go out on mission, is suggesting, there's, I'm reaching the world. The gospel's going to go out to all nations. Jesus is reaching out, sending his people on mission as early as this and asking us to, telling us to, to beg for more workers because the harvest is plentiful. Jesus did not understand missions as something new. He's linking it, as he always did, with everything in the Old Testament. So we've thought about the beginning. We thought about Matthew 28 in the beginning, the promises to the patriarchs, Genesis 10. And now we're going to turn to a handout that you've got. And we're going to do a whistle-stop tour of some other passages. And you can see this handout. This is an outline of the Bible's history, nicely put together by an Australian scholar called Graham Goldsworthy. And there at the top, you've got creation and, of course, fall. And then you have Abraham, round about maybe 2000, 2100 B.C. You've got Moses and the Exodus. That's maybe 1450 B.C. David is about 1,000 B.C., Solomon maybe 930. And then after Solomon, the kingdom is divided into two parts. On the left side, we've got Judah. On the right side, we've got Israel. Judah is in the south, and that's where Jerusalem is. Israel is in the north. And there's 10 tribes in the north, two in the south. And so the Bible history then with kings and chronicles divides into the history of Judah and Israel. And Israel was the most wicked of the two, and they were deported. They were defeated by the Assyrians and deported uh, there. And then later on, the Judahites were also overcome, this time by Babylon. And in 597, 586 BC, they were, Jude, Jerusalem was destroyed, and they were taken into exile. And by the rivers of Babylon, there we wept when we remembered Zion. Anyone remember Boney M? Yeah, a few of us do. So there's uh, 70 years of exile and then a return. And the first return, you know, the book of Daniel talks about the return under uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. And then there's the, what they call the post-exilic prophets, the ones after the exile. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. And then we get the period between the Testaments and then the Lord Jesus comes so you've got it all on there and on the right side there you've got actually the world superpowers so those names that are in bold uh, Egypt and then Assyria then Babylon then Persian uh, powers 
then Greece, then Rome. So this is the Bible's history running alongside the kind of main history of, of the world. Now, what is God doing in this time period? What is his heart for the world? We're going to look at a few different texts. And if you've got a pen, this is kind of, kind of just a bit of fun. If you've got a pen, just mark on this sheet where this text actually comes from. And we'll see if there's a consistency to it. 1 Kings 8, 1 Kings chapter 8. And this is on page 346, page 346. This is Solomon, King Solomon. And they've finished building the temple. And it's this great high point in the nation's history. And Solomon does this prayer. Praise be to God. And they're going to dedicate the temple. And this is what he says in his prayer. 1 Kings 8, 59. And may these words of mine, which I have prayed before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may uphold the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel according to each day's need. So, so far this is quite local, isn't it? This is about our, us and our people. Lord, hear us. According to the, the people Israel, according to each day's need. But look at verse 60. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other there's the goal. They've built this beautiful temple that was one of the wonders of the world. And it's their temple. It's for their God. And what's the purpose of it? So that the whole world will see and come and know. So that the nations may know that there's no other God and come and know the true God. That's Solomon. Now turn to 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles, over a little bit. Chapter 16. 1 Chronicles 16. And this is page 419. Page 419. And this is in the lifetime of David. So this is uh, before the, the temple's been built. And this, they were, you still had a tent at this stage called the tabernacle. 1 Chronicles 16, verse 8. Give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Make known among the nations what he has done. What is the purpose of us praising and worshipping? It's to make him known among all the peoples of the world. Let's turn over to Psalm 2. Psalms right in the middle of the Bible. Psalm 2, one of the gateway psalms for the whole book. And Psalm 2, which is uh, on page 543, says this. Psalm 2, verse 7 and 8. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. So this was a psalm that was used in crowning Israel's king. But the goal of it, the goal of their crowning was to reach the nations. Turn over to Psalm 22. This may have been one of the Lord Jesus' favorite psalms. He quoted it. On the cross, page 554, Psalm 22, verse 27 and 28. And this is the psalm that begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? It's, it runs through all that stuff that is so uh, resonant of his experience on the cross. But look where the psalm goes at the end. Psalm 22, verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord 
and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. So the forsakenness and the suffering of God's servant at the start of the psalm leads in the end of the psalm to the ends of the earth and all the families of nations turning to the Lord. It's just so beautiful. That's what's happening, and we can see it in our own time. Let's turn over again, Psalm 67. Psalm 67. This is a beautiful one, actually, to pray. Uh, Psalm 67, page 581. Page 581. And I like the way they've translated it here in the, the new NIV. It's very clear. It says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us. You know, that's the, uh, the ironic blessing from Numbers. We pray, you know, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine on you and so on. Here's, look at the logic word in, to go into verse 2. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. So the purpose of God being gracious to us and blessing us and his face shining on us is so that his ways may be known all around the world. and No one will be left out. All nations will know his salvation. Okay, let's keep turning over. Isaiah chapter 45. We're in the prophets now. Isaiah's time was, as you can see on the handout, is it on the handout? Got general, yeah, he's a, a Judaic prophet. He's prophesying before the deportation, but he's also prophesying knowing about it. Isaiah 45 says this, uh, verse 22 to 23. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. Does that sound familiar? At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. But God says here, turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. And just think about what's happening with the nations and God's people at this time. The Assyrians have come and wrecked the northern kingdom and taken them all away. And most of them are never seen again. And now the Babylonians have come and they've trashed Jerusalem. And what's Isaiah saying? That God's saying, turn to me the nations. I love the world. He's reaching out. A couple of pages over, Isaiah 49, verse 6. Isaiah 49, verse 6. This is a real dynamite verse. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant and to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. An extraordinary and very important vision here. Isaiah is living in a time of complete unfaithfulness. The country's going to the dogs. They're barely holding on to the promises. Most people are giving up hope, worrying about losing the land, how to keep from being overrun by Babylon. And here's Isaiah, and he sees way beyond it all. He sees beyond that this, this isn't just about a piece of land that we call Israel, a physical geographical territory. The whole world is tied up in this. And if we're faithful to God, the Lord, and the covenant, he's going to bless the entire world. And he says, it's too small for him just to restore the tribes. If you think the Messiah thing is just about getting the nation back, you've missed the point. 
You've missed the whole thing. I will make you a light for the Gentiles that salvation will reach the ends of the earth. God is concerned about the ends of the earth. Everyone. The light for the nations. Let's go to Daniel. As you can see on your sheet, Daniel is quite late on in the history. He's, uh, he's in the Persian court. He has to walk a fine line uh, with uh, ethical conundrums and, and try to be faithful to God in, in a pagan court. Daniel chapter 7, one of the most powerful chapters in the whole Old Testament. I'm on page 893. This is, by the way, where Jesus gets his title, Son of Man, from. We had a good question this week in our Simply Christianity course. Why does Jesus call himself Son of Man all the time? Here's the answer. Daniel 7, verse 13. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, which just means a human, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, that's God, and he was led into his presence, and he was given authority, glory, sovereign power, all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So who is this person who looks like a human, a son of man, yet comes into the presence of God himself and is given all of these things that God doesn't share with anyone else? God never shares his glory, his authority, his power. And this person is the one who's going to establish a kingdom that will never end and will fill the whole world. All peoples of every language will worship him. Who is it? Jesus. That's why he calls himself Son of Man all the time. Now, people didn't realize that. Daniel 7 is a bit obscure. But now once you see that, it should light up the page every time you see Son of Man. This is what he's hinting at. Finally, we're going to go to Zephaniah, everyone's favorite book. And I'll be honest, I'm not sure where to find it either. I'm going to keep talking until I find it. Uh, Zephaniah is page 945, page 945, and this is really a very beautiful verse. And this is our last one that we're going to look at. Zephaniah, who was a, Ju- a prophet in the kings of Judah. And he's talking about the enemies of Israel and how they've just, you know, mocked and taunted and threatened his people. But this is what he says, Zephaniah 2 verse 11. The Lord will be awesome to them when he destroys all the gods of the earth. Distant nations will bow down to him, all of them in their own lands. All of them in their own lands. So God comes to make himself known, to reveal himself to human beings, to expose the frauds, the false counterfeit gods that we create. But he doesn't do it to humiliate us, but to reveal himself to us in his grace and kindness. And when he destroys the gods of the earth, the distant nations on the coastlands, far-flung peoples of the earth will bow down to him, each of them in their own lands. All of this is about God making a people who are going to be a light to the world. I hope you can see now that it's a consistent thread. So remember when Jesus was really upset about the money changers in the temple? Remember that episode? It's quite striking because Jesus normally isn't violent. Uh, but here he, he, he gets very uh, 
righteously angry. Um, is, is it because they're dealing with money on, on the Sabbath? No. In fact, they needed to have someone to change currency because Jews were traveling from all over the known world. If they'd been outside the temple, it would have been okay. Jesus is upset because it was of, of where they were in the temple. They were changing money and selling animals in the court of the Gentiles, the place where the nations were allowed to come, the place where uh, non-Jews could come and hear about God and learn his word and his ways and worship him. The very thing that the whole temple was about was being stomped all over with the money changers because they thought this is all just about us and our nation. Jesus, when he rebuked them, quoted from Isaiah saying, my house is a house of prayer for all nations. And if you think it's just about you, you're missing the point. So that whole Old Testament backdrop is essential for us understanding the New Testament and what it proclaims. That now he's come, lived, died, risen and ascended. He sends us into the world to make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the uh, triune name. Missions is rooted in the Old Testament. They don't rep represent something new about some plan B. God has always been about the nations. Jesus' proclamation, I'll finish with this quote from a scholar called Gordon Fee. Jesus' proclamation is to be understand, understood as the fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham. It embraces the prophets that God's intent from the beginning has been to bless all peoples on earth. And he's doing it. This series is about capturing the excitement of what God is doing in the world. And the good news is we know what's going to happen. And he's been working at it for thousands of years. And what it means is that we at King's Church have the opportunity to be part of God's mission to the world. He's the one on mission. We're just joining in. We can be part of it. Because what God promises, he will deliver. He's promised to bless every nation on earth, and it will happen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your holy word and for the span of it, the sweep of it. And just to pick a theme and pull a thread and find that golden thread going right back through the Bible and realize that all the different ethnic groups and people groups and cultures of this world they're all under your rule and lordship. And you're calling people from every single one of them. And one day, a multitude of people that no one could even count will be gathered around your throne. And we will see you as you are. And then we will be like you. Thank you that you've called us to know you, to, to see you. You've revealed yourself. Help us, please, to catch some of this spirit of mission, the dynamic forward momentum and please would you use us here as king's church for your glory in whatever way you see fit amen